1: Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, a show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. Today, we tackle a subject on the show that we have not tackled adequately for some time, and that is on the subject of Investing Wisely. How to Invest Wisely. Now, the subject of investing is, of course, massive and can be applied to many aspects of life. But specifically today, we're going to talk about stock market investing with somebody who is actively involved in the business. My guest is John Medford. John, go ahead and take a moment and introduce yourself, please. Share a little bit about the work that you are currently involved in so my audience can get a context of how you're coming to this conversation, please.
0: Sure. Uh, so, uh, thanks for having me. So, uh, I uh, am a partner at a um, at an investment firm uh, that invests entirely in publicly traded stocks um, in the U.S. and in Europe. We've been in business for about 15 years. We manage about a billion dollars, mostly for high net worth individuals, endowments. We're um, more specifically a hedge fund, uh, which has is a dirty word, but basically just means it because we're really good at what we do, we're able to charge more in fees, um, but it doesn't have perhaps connotations that typically are associated with it.
1: So John Medford is not the name that John was born with by his parents, and that's what's giving us the opportunity to dig into some of the things that we're going to dig into. So the reason that I wanted to have John on is because in this context, we can talk with somebody who's actively involved in the business. It's a real challenge for somebody like me, who is a podcast host, to try to find interesting guests who... uh, are able to bring an honest inside look to the marketplace, without having a significant conflict of interest. Generally, interviews have to be run through uh, the legal team for compliance reasons. Generally, people who are on the show are actively pitching something. It's just a challenge for me to give inside information. And so John is on the show here. And uh, again, John is not the name that his parents dubbed him with. uh, And that gives us the opportunity to chat inside about what's actually going on from somebody who's working in the business. First, John, I'd like to start with just... A quick intro on how important returns are and what this benefit is. Because in personal finance, at this point in time, the safe solution for me as a broadcaster, as somebody who's encouraging people to be thoughtful and careful with their money, the safe solution that won't result in my getting fired is to recommend to all of my listeners that they take all of their money and that they invest it into index funds. And certainly, I don't think that's an ineffective solution. But I also always look at those returns and I always think, but if you could get a little bit higher, it could do a little bit better. So talk for just a moment about how, when you're working in your hedge fund, what your returns have been and how they compare to your competitive returns that you're being measured against, your benchmarks.
0: Sure. So look, there's most funds don't do don't do a good job. I mean the, the vast majority of funds are going to underperform their benchmarks, which is why um which is why index funds are so popular and rightfully so. I mean I think Warren Buffett's been asked uh you know what he'd recommend folks do and he always recommends, you know, unless you're going to do it professionally you do, you invest in index funds. Um and I think he had a famous bet with um uh some prominent people that ran hedge fund funds <laughs> that the index would outperform their five or ten best chosen Uh, hedge funds over time. And lo and behold, he's, he's won that bet pretty handily. So in terms of, um, our, our returns historically, look, we, we have, we were for a long period of time, a smaller firm. Um, we do a lot of quirky stuff. We're exceptionally passionate about what we do. We spend, uh, you know, almost all our time doing it. I, I love what I do. I find it really fun, actually engaging. I've been doing it for, uh, Ten years at this point, but doing it informally since I was you know probably closer to twenty years, uh, my partner who founded the business has been doing this professionally about fifteen years, and our track record's really good, so we've compounded our capital um, since uh since inception at about um eighteen percent a year uh, The market over that time has delivered call it eight ish percent roughly um now that said, that's our gross return. So that's what you know, as investors in the fund, we would we would get on our capital invested in it. If you were to look at an external investor who has to pay fees, that number gets closer to about twelve and a half percent. And the reason that delta is so high is essentially you know, call it a five and a half percent expense ratio. But the reason we can charge that is we're generating excess return, and so some of that comes to investors and. Some of it comes to ourselves. And even despite charging those fees, we still have an attractive product with a lot less volatility.
1: Here is why I think these numbers are so important. And I wanted to lead with them. I think that in many ways, people like me in the personal finance space have become cavalier about returns and their impact on people's wealth. I'm very nervous using high predicted rates of return because I don't know how to tell a broad audience of people, here's how you get these returns. And the other thing that's challenging is doing this at various points in the market cycle. For example, over the last few years, almost anything has done well, but it's not always that way. But if we look out over a lifetime of investing, rate of return is massively important, and it's especially important as your wealth grows. In the beginning, the most important number is how much you save, and that's, for most people, going to be driven by your income. But quickly, as your investments grow, you quickly get to the point where the most important return number is the investment rate. And so here's to put this into context how important this conversation is for the average person. Let's say you're investing over a 40-year career, from 25 to 65. And you're putting aside just a measly $5,000 per year. You're making a Roth IRA contribution at $5,000 per year, starting with nothing. At an 8% annualized return, your investment portfolio at age 65 would be expected to be about $1.4 million. Not bad, especially for putting aside $5,000 per year. But at an 18% rate of return at 65, your investment portfolio would be $24.5 million. Now, let's use the the retail rate of 12.5% for somebody who is investing with you, John, not you. It's $5 million. There is a huge, meaningful difference for actual spendable income, actual impact, Between $1.4 million and $5 million. And there's an even bigger impact between that and $24.5 million. So this matters hugely. And I get really bothered because I'm I've succumbed to this idea of saying, well, you can't get returns. Markets efficient, et cetera. And yet it's too important to just leave alone. So to begin with, John, I want you to get into details, but let's say that you were advising me. And knowing that you can't just say, well, buy my fund, because that's not an opportunity in this context. How do you advise me to think about my stock market investing dollars knowing that I really want return, but I don't know how to get it?
0: Uh even even though I'm doing this uh not under my uh the name my parents gave me, I will give the usual disclaimer that I, I just pick stocks and I've done that for a long time and I have my opinions about the way people might do things, but <laughs> You should reach your own conclusions on that, but I can opine um, on that with that caveat. Uh, Look, you said this on your show. I think it's a really interesting concept. I'm good at what I do. I'm very bad at lots of things in life. (laughs) I happen to be good at this, and I love it. And it so happens that I believe if you devote yourself to one thing and try and become very good at it, (laughs) and you're, you know, of reasonable intelligence and you, uh, you know, are humble um, and you have a lust of learning and curiosity, I think you can be good at it. Uh, I think if you don't do that, you know, you might be able to also be good at it, but it's a lot harder. Um, So I would say in many respects, I'm I'm not good at very many things, but it's be one thing I'm good at. And so for, for that reason, I think it makes sense to do it, you know, my choice is basically investing in stocks. Now, it's horribly tax inefficient. If I think from a standpoint of if I was just maximizing my wealth, I wish I would have spent you know, time, more time understanding real estate, given the tax characteristics of that. But I think ultimately, you know, the first question is, you know, what is there anything that you happen to be really good at or can develop a skill at? And if it is, you know, I think that tends to be the best place to put your money. Now, realistically, if you have a full-time job, and that job doesn't involve investing, it's difficult to develop that competency, at least right away. So a couple of things I can say uh, on this. So one, generally index funds are probably the best, but there's some huge caveats to that. When you invest matters a lot. In general, the market returns have been, call it 7%. I don't know where the numbers are, roughly 7% over a very long period of time, but depending on when you invested, uh, that return can be very different. So, for example, if you happen to, to invest at the top of the internet bust uh, to today, your returns would still actually be pretty decent, but they'd be much less good than if you started your investing in 2009. Now, this isn't an issue if you're putting you know $5,000 a year, uh, but to the degree you have a meaningful bonus or inheritance or something like that, and you decide to put all your money into index funds at, at one point in time, um, that, that can result in some pretty um, pretty bad scenarios. So look, if you're going to invest in the stock market, I think index funds are definitely reasonable. Um, I think one just needs to be careful about the returns that one underwrites. I think from today, my personal opinion, and that it's not going to be as good as it has been historically, even if you look out over a 20 or 30 year period, at least on a real basis. Uh, but. I I've been wrong on that, and that's not an error of confidence of mine. If you do actually want to invest personally in the stock market, I think it's great to try to build a competency and I, I I strongly believe that someone that really devotes themselves to to um, stock analysis can actually you know build a skill um, and make money, especially in smaller companies um, but it's just something that takes a lot of time and so when I started investing in college i mean I, i'd say the first eight years I was in this business to kind of uh, even before I was doing it professionally I, I didn't know what I was doing and I had basically had 90% of my money in index funds I think at that time index funds were as popular so maybe it was actually mutual funds which in retrospect I wouldn't have done and I had 5 or 10% in individual stocks and I treated that 5 to 10% as not necessarily gambling money but as experimental money and then I watched my returns and I, I thought about you know I was trying to be honest with myself about my capabilities and if I thought I was doing a good job. And, and as time went on, I devoted more time to it. I decided to put more and more money uh, away from the ETF and into the digital stocks. But had I not devoted myself to my profession in that way, I wouldn't have done it. I would have found something else um, that I could have compounded money at in a better way.
1: Well, just as a personal finance observer, I would illustrate, you know, with your being the partner an investing partner in an almost billion dollar hedge fund you can do both things you have an incredible synergy in that position uh of being able to earn a lot of personal income using a form of synthetic equity using other people's money and to invest at the very highest rates um and to invest a lot of money by using other people's money. That's why so many intelligent bright people go to the investment marketplace. So you're you're doing great for you, but I want to go back to for the rest of us. So I agree with you in terms of it seems to be a it's not a consensus, it seems to be a a highly echoed prognostication that future returns will not over coming decades for the market in general would probably not be as Generous as they have been for some of the past decades, what's the argument though? What are the headwinds that are causing so many people to believe that? And and I mean Warren Buffett I mean, just just to pick on the the most commonly thrown around name. Many people are saying there are major headwinds. What are the what's the argument for that position?
0: Okay, so I'm going to narrow this a little bit. So I'm going to say <sighs> developed markets. I'd say U.S and developed Europe, I'm going to ignore emerging markets. Um, I don't have a strong opinion on emerging markets. My bias would be that you know that that those might do better. Um, But if you look at developed economies, a few different things. One is in general, uh, we're moving towards a society we've had a two and a half to three percent tailwind as an economy from more people being born. In most developed countries, um, especially countries that speak English, uh that tailwind is starting to reduce in certain countries like Japan. It's it's become a headwind. Uh so it's harder to grow your economy when you're not growing your people. Um the the second thing, I'd say if you think about the US kind of where we were fifty or seventy five years ago, it's just a different uh environment uh than than, than we have today. So that's one. Um two we're Stocks are. This is going to get a little bit technical. I assume it's okay if I get slightly technical.
1: Go ahead. All
0: right. So um, when you own a stock, you own a portion of a business. And that business has a price attached to it. There are X number of shares. And so you get a price per share based on the total value of the enterprise and how many shares there are. Um, That company, let's just assume the company has earnings to make things simple the company has earnings. Um, people generally value stocks based on their earnings, not entirely, but let's just make that simplifying assumption as well. And so when you're investing in the market, which is really just a collection of stocks, you have X amount of investment uh, that's producing Y earnings. Uh, and there's a multiple that's attached to that. So let's say for simplicity's sake, that multiple today are different numbers, but let's call it 18. So I have the stock, I have my, my index funds, let's just use, I don't know, I'm gonna assume, we'll call it S&P, let's assume the S&P just to make numbers simple, is 100. So 100, I have, uh, gosh, let's make it even more simple, so 20 times earnings, so let's say I have $5, uh, $5 for earnings. Uh, now over time, the investment grows a few different ways. One, uh, the, that earnings can grow. So that $5 can go to $510, $525 to the degree that earnings grow, and the multiple stays the same, the investment grows. Now, over time, my impression is that the earnings growth has been, call it 2 or 3% a year. So you have that. Secondly, you have capital return, which in, in the form of dividends. Um, current dividend yield across the stock market right now is something like 2%. Um, I think it's varied over time, but let's call it 2%. So you have kind of five percent of your return they actually think you can feel decent about Um, dividends aren't there uh, and earnings growth over a long period of time i don't think there's any reason to to think that that's changing particularly now the third factor is the multiple you put on those earnings and that number varies wildly and that number has a huge impact on what your return is in a given year so you know simplistically if you think about uh, you know certain market environments. So 2009, I think you had you know that multiple. And again, these are going to be rough numbers, illustrative. That multiple may have dropped to nine, and here we are today. That multiples call it 18, 19. Your return that you've gotten from the "quote unquote" predictable things, earnings and dividend yields, that's not really. Re- I mean, it's rebounded some, but it's not what's driven the returns. What's driven the returns is people instead of you know willing to pay nine times that number now willing to pay 18 times that number. <laughs> And if you look over a very long period of time, there's an argument that folks make, which is basically you can rely on that, call it 5%, and that multiple expansion, it's just hard to know. But all else being equal, you're better off when you're buying it at a lower stock multiple than when you're buying a higher stock multiple. And so very simply, and you can do some math around this, if you assume over, I think, a 10-year period that, that earnings grows, call it 5% a year, or earnings dividend gets you 5% return a year, but the multiple falls in half. <laughs> uh, I don't know what, exactly where that math works out. And, and Josh, I'm sure you can put something together on this, but basically you, you would end up with something that basically has no return. And so the, the the real variable that moves things a lot isn't actually the underlying performance of the businesses. It tends to more be people's feeling or multiple they're willing to ascribe to those earnings.
1: Yeah, and that's what what I don't understand about many of the... There are some businesses that I understand that make sense. The company is profitable. They have a compelling value proposition. They have real customers. They really they really work. And I would be happy and proud to be a, a marginal owner of those businesses. There are other businesses that it seems to me have massive stratospheric desire by investment managers that i just simply don't understand i, I was looking at uber recently and i don't want to obviously i don't want to get into individual things but i'm just looking at this company and saying massive company that can't seem to make money basically what, how is this the how do these things happen and you look at so many of the modern companies i don't know how to connect them to reality and so i don't know if There's something that's broken with me, that I'm just old-fashioned, and we're in a new world where the old rules don't make sense, and the goal is to get as big as possible and lose money all the way through, as some of the leading companies seem to do, or if there's something old, and so it causes me to be very insecure about Decisions like that, especially when then I look at what's happening in the world, and as you say, the difference between nine and eighteen is major. If you're going to value things at nine times, that's going to be a very different than number than at eighteen times. But then I look at the world being a wash in money, <laughs> and it's it almost seems like the old do the old rules still apply? I, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I'm stymied by the by the problem.
0: I don't know the answer either, and I think what we do as a – this isn't maybe super satisfying, but as a firm, or just as a person, there are certain things I know the answer to and I feel like I'm good at. That's analyzing individual stocks. Right. There are other things that are a lot more complicated and require a very different skill set, like, for example, um, trying to predict where the economy is going or trying to predict the multiple that people are willing to apply to those earnings streams across a broad number of companies. That is a totally different skill set. I have no idea how to do that. Um, that said, I can be aware it exists and I can try and carve out a niche for myself where I'm focused more on businesses I can understand that have been valued for better or worse somewhat consistently over time. And so what I would say the nice thing is, at least if you're investing in I don't know, S&P 500, um, some of the bigger indexes, there's also... Um, IVN, which I think is the Russell 2000 value index, you can avoid some of those stocks. Um, now, there's an argument to be made that those stocks are are very attractive. I'm not going to make that, but I think, look, people can make money a lot of different ways. I mean, there are venture capital firms that, you know, invest you know very early in stuff and have had amazing returns, and they literally do like two hours of work. Uh, before they make a half a million or a million dollar investment. It's pretty amazing. But you have one success there. You find Facebook and it's paid for every mistake you're going to make. Um, but look, I mean, ultimately with the stock market, it, it just gets very complicated when you start to get individual stocks. I think to the degree that you don't want to bet on eToys in 1999 having a $30 billion valuation and people think it's going to be worth that. And if you can find parallels today, the way you avoid that is you basically avoid To the degree, the more specific ETFs uh, that have a lot of names like that in them that aren't generating earnings, you can generally avoid those. And you do that a pretty good job of that by choosing more boring indexes uh, like the S&P, Dow, um, or potentially a value skewed index, um, which there are plenty of.
1: So do you think that normal people with an above average interest in money should simply give up? and say, I'm just going to take market returns? Or do you think that normal people with an above-average interest in money and investing should seek to become competent DIY investors buying publicly traded securities?
0: That's a very good question. Um, it's really hard to do that, uh, but you can do it. Uh, there are, uh, look, but if you're going to do that, it's a job, you know, to to spend, you know. I don't know two hours a week doing something is just not going to be competent. I mean, I don't know, you know, to the degree you're a surgeon, right? Someone tries to be a surgeon a couple hours a week. It's probably not going to go very well. Um, and, and the thing is, if you start to spend that much time on it, I, I think there are probably, I, I can only speak to investing. I think it's possible to do. Um, I know people that have done it. Uh, there are probably easier ways to do it than putting your time in stocks. So what I would say generally is, look, if you have a 401k and that's your option, you know, putting it in ETFs is probably a fine thing to do. Um, I think generally you shouldn't make bets about where the market is, uh, even though it's going to have a big impact in returns. You just kind of put in you know, the amount that you have every year, you just 65, you'll probably have up with something that's okay because that money will be put in over a long period of time. Um, but to the degree that you can develop a competency in something, whether it be investing or real estate or something else, I, I think you're going to find, or starting a business thing, you're going to find a lot more attractive returns there than you are just putting your money in an ETF. So um, let me let me, let, me, hard.
1: let me hone in on on something then, because I want to understand the difference between your abilities as a professional hedge fund manager versus mine the thing that bothers me about stock market investing just to use and what i mean is purchasing publicly traded securities from for large companies um the thing that bought and trying to trying to choose do i want to put together a portfolio of blue chip stocks or, or this kind of thing what bothers me is I don't see where my competitive advantage is in that market. Let's stick with real estate versus stocks. I can understand where my competitive market is to find, or my competitive advantage is to find a below value property in a neighborhood in my in my town because I can understand which neighborhoods are coming up, which neighborhoods are going down, and I can go out on a Tuesday evening and drive around with my children in the back seat, and I can look for houses that look dilapidated, that look like there might be something happening, and I can start to go and knock on doors and ask people if they know anyone on the street that they might want to sell their house. I'm doing work that is in such a tiny market, that it's very reasonable that I could be one of, if any others, one of only a few other people who are actually canvassing that um, that market. But if I go to US-listed securities exchanges, there are, I don't know the number, at least hundreds of thousands of people who are scouring these same handful of some few thousands of companies, and I don't see the competitive advantage I have. So what do you have as an investor that I don't have sitting at home on Yahoo Finance?
0: So it's not higher intellect. It's more time and more resources and more focus. So the analogy you have is interesting. So you said something I think really insightful, which is you can focus on a small neighborhood where you do a lot of work, right? You know the ins and outs of that neighborhood, you drive around and do on the ground diligence. It's not just looking up on Zillow and buying you know, a home in Nebraska when you live in Florida. You do it in a neighborhood that you understand. Stock investing it isn't really too dissimilar. So a couple of things I'd say. One is as a firm, we spend probably about a million dollars a year um, on research. Now, that research comes in a couple different flavors. A relatively small amount of it, frankly, is off the shelf research. A fairly large part of it is what would be called proprietary research. So for example, if I'm researching well if I'm researching a company, and the other thing I'd say just to make it simple as well is i'm not looking going to look at things that a thousand other smart people are looking at. I want to look in markets that are inefficient where there's lots of fear. Um, these tend to be. Companies that aren't very well followed, they're not kind of popular household names, or if they were popular household names, they uh, no longer are and have a stigma associated with them. So first, you start going to those areas, as you would say, that you know are inefficient. And the second thing is you throw a lot of intellect and time and money trying to figure out those neighborhoods better than anyone else. Uh, and that's what we do. So, as I said, we spend a million dollars a year in research. What does that mean? That means I do, gosh, I personally probably do about 300 phone calls a year with former employees, competitors, customers, industry experts of businesses we're considering investing in.
1: Um,
0: What else do we do? I can actually talk to management teams uh, of the companies that we're investing in because we have access to that because we're of a scale that we can do that. Um, That can help as well. Um, I've been doing this for a long time now. So I have tremendous experiential knowledge. Um, for example, we do a lot of investing in software. Um, I've just have a very good sense of that market. I've seen a lot of patterns in terms of why people panic and sometimes sell software stocks that they shouldn't. Um, there are host of interesting little things about that that I could talk about endlessly. But just from doing it for a long period of time, you see pattern recognition. I imagine if you're good at real estate, you would see a set of patterns that would make you be attracted in a deal, I'm making this up, but maybe it could be, you know, someone who's lived in the house for a long time. The house is not uh, very well kept. Uh, maybe it's really dirty, it's messy, but those are things, uh, you know, maybe they're not using a broker or not using a good broker. Uh, maybe it's on the market for a long time. You just see these patterns of things that tend to result in people that aren't as sophisticated as you haven't done it as much, that they might value those things. They might value the dirt on the floor, <laughs> At negative ten thousand dollars in the house, and psychologically, you can see how that makes sense <laughs> realistically, with experience, you know you can buy a five dollar you know cleaner and fix it uh, with an hour of work <laughs> and so it's not it's not very different than getting good at anything <laughs> I think the challenge with the stock market is it 's just like the world's casino and because people tell you it's investing. I think people convince themselves sometimes investing is actually gambling, and then you get into a whole list of other issues. But chances are, unless you spend a lot of time on it, unless you have specific knowledge about a company or an industry, you probably don't know what you're doing, and you're probably going to do substantially worse than just an index one.
1: So let me ask you about risk. I personally have of what I perceive to be a fairly high tolerance for risk. And let me define that term in two ways. First, volatility. My personal theory that I practice and and encourage others to practice is keep your personal finances separate from your investments in this way. I don't know how to control for the volatility of an investment portfolio, but I do know how to calculate how much money I need every year and make sure that I have money that's not going to be volatile to provide for my expenses. So then in looking at an investment portfolio, if I say this portfolio here is likely to be this volatile based upon historical understandings. And so therefore, if I keep three years of cash outside of the portfolio, I could afford to leave that portfolio alone completely for three years, which would get me through 72.6% of the problems, something like that. So I segregate investing from personal finance. I don't want my life or my lifestyle to be subject to the risk of investment volatility. That helps me to be more comfortable with risk. A lot of people have this sense, however, that investing in the market is just this intensely risky thing. I'm a little bit more cavalier about that concept of risk, thinking that somehow if I buy this company, it'll go to zero. I'm a little cavalier because, one, I think the market is very efficient. There are a lot of people who are looking for things, and it's hard to believe that if this company were headed to uh, to zero – there wouldn't be some indications of that. There are a lot of people trying to find that information out. So yes, there are spectacular bankruptcies. There are spectacular failures that come from nowhere. But those are pretty few and far between compared to the most of the companies that just don't generally do well. So the risk of a company going to zero is very, very modest. And companies have a lot of assets. Now it's a little different to look at a company that's very heavily on, you know, this whole asset is intellectual property or an idea or an app. You know, I don't know what Uber's assets are other than its user base and its app. And doesn't I don't seem to see what their their moat is that they can put against competition, considering that most Uber drivers are running three apps at a time and most Uber riders are, are also have two or three apps on their phone. So I don't see what this, this, this moat is other than you know, early mover advantage and brand recognition. But when I look at a company like, I don't know, my favorite, Walmart, I look at Walmart and I look at it and say, man, you've got millions of customers on a global basis. You've got diversified um, streams of income. You've got tremendous physical plants, infrastructure, et cetera. There's real value here. And so no matter what, obviously that value needs to be properly assessed based upon the formula of earnings, profitability, you know, et cetera, and some multiple, but this is not that risky. So I'm not worried if the, if the dollar plummets, here's a company that earns money in all kinds of currencies all around the world. So I just don't see large companies or reasonable companies with professional management is all that risky. It doesn't, it doesn't seem any, it seems far riskier to me to own a house on the corner that could be wiped out by a zoning change or could be wiped out by a law change or something like that than it does to own shares of a large global corporation. Where am I wrong? What am I missing in that kind of ambivalence about risk?
0: Uh, well, so the first thing you said is something I wholeheartedly agree with. So even though I can get very attractive returns by funds, it's not particularly useful if I have to dip into that. At definition, what would probably be the worst time. If the market's down a lot, funds down a lot, I'm not making so switch income. I might have to dip into savings to do that. So having cash just provides a buffer that allows you to never have to kind of call yourself out. So That totally makes sense. I think you're also generally correct. Look, the more businesses you have, other things like that, it's harder to. If you buy Walmart, you're not really buying one business; you're buying one type of business, you know, all over the world, and such that you know one thing can go bad in one region, you could still probably be okay. That said, um, simplistically, I would not take much of any comfort in any signaling just because it's a big company you've heard of and the stock's gone up or other things like that. Walmart probably is safer. But you'd be surprised at the level of um, the, the level of uh, I mean Enron, for example. I mean, there are lots of examples. of this company Valiant, um, all different kinds of companies that we're seeing as these kind of big, good companies that end up having a lot of issues that you wouldn't be able to diagnose logically, sometimes outright, for or other things like that. So in general, even being a professional investor, spending tremendous amounts of time on every company we research, we typically in our portfolio don't have more than 5% of, uh, of the portfolio in one investment. Um, personally, when I did things myself, when I had my own portfolio, I would be comfortable going to 10 to 15. But even in that case, it'd be things that I knew tremendously. I, I would never make the assumption that just because a company is big and has professional management and it has a stock price with a big valuation, that, um, that it's safe. Uh, I can give a bunch of examples of that, um, but maybe another way to, to tackle this is within the investment community. There are lots of people that have very different jobs. So why individual investor or why small firms can actually do quite well in the market is due to a, a whole host of structural issues with the way investments are managed. So if you think about the stock market and the investors in it, right now you have I don't know what the numbers are twenty-five or thirty percent of money which literally just goes into whatever stocks are in index in the composition that they happen to be in. There's no lens of value. There's no lens of interesting things happening in the business. It is just formulaically put to work in indices, which is actually creating more opportunities for people that can to do a lot of work. Two, you then have the vast majority of money that's managed, which is managed still by mutual funds or institutional investors, making these numbers up, let's call it, you know, 30% ETFs, and then you have 60% mutual funds. Those mutual funds get compensated almost entirely on a percent of assets. They don't get rewarded very much for doing substantially better than the market because they don't get a percent of profits. They just get their management fee. They want to do just well enough not to be fired. And so those people basically try and track the market and make some small adjustments around the edges, to try and maybe outperform it by a 50 or 100 basis. But in reality, you know, a lot of them don't do that. And so they'll tend to lag by roughly their fees. And then you have a much smaller portion of the market um, with people that are getting paid substantially more as a percent of the assets they manage with tremendous incentives to find stocks that outperform and to have no correlation. And those people are throwing massive amounts of resources and employees at companies that other people aren't looking at as in detail. So I, I can't, can't tell you how many times I go to conferences or other things like that, and you just see people that, you know, there's one analyst maybe who covers a hundred stocks and covers a hundred stocks. Each one is a 50 basis point position or 25 basis point position for the company he works for. No matter how smart that person is, you just can't Divide your time in such a way to be expert on a hundred companies and you can be expert on like ten or twelve or thirteen at any one time uh, and so the math just becomes very unfavorable so what you have, to have happen is occasionally you'll see these spectacular failures where you know the businesses were owned by You know, a whole host of people, it was seen as this very safe company, and lo and behold, the thing goes under. Now, interestingly, there, in many cases that that happens, I'd argue in most cases that that happens, there are uh, short sellers that tend to be employed um, at hedge funds that are doing work trying to uncover frauds or businesses that have presented themselves in one way that actually aren't what they think, what what they make themselves to be. And in most cases, we have those spectacular failures. You have people like me that would be betting on them failing because they've uncovered through massive amounts of on-the-ground diligence, um, other things of that nature might might find a, a fraud that's there that people have missed. So I think it's very dangerous to ever have, assume any investment is inherently safe. Certainly there are ones that are going to be more Safe than others, <laughs> but there's that, there's leverage, there's all different kinds of factors that come into play that might not be obvious unless you do this as a profession.
1: Yeah, and, and you very briefly there at the very end alluded to just even all the different tools and different ways of playing a hunch or playing a bet, whether that bet is up, down, all of the ways to ensure your bet, et cetera, which are effective but are largely opaque to a retail investor. Here's here's what bugs me which I want to try to figure out how to do. To your comments. I it seems to me from having sort of worked sort of worked in the investment business there is I don't know what cliche to 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 spout out here but you won't get, what's the, what's the, What was the old thing about IBM? Where they said you won't get fired if you choose IBM. That yeah. ba- Basically, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a safe choice. Yeah, it might not do very well, but you're not going to get fired. And as you just pointed out, in the investment business, the majority of people are just trying not to get fired. And even though at this point in time, I have no allegiance, I have no conflict of interest. I'm just me, Joshua. I have no allegiance. I have no conflict of interest. I have nothing that is is um in any way to, to my opinions i still don't want to get fired i still don't want to make a crazy prediction that turns out to be wrong and so i always go back to well index funds are safe how can i be the guy that says no you should try to go and find you know john medford and invest in his hedge fund because this is too important and i run the math and i quietly do things myself in my own private life but when it gets when it comes time to putting my reputation on the line then it's very hard to put my reputation on the line for something that's not safe that's not that's not deniable that i couldn't defend now at every level of the investment business you have the same thing if i were when i was a financial advisor actively managing money you had exactly the same thing you would you you would get very little return for a massive um outperformance, if there were some way for an in individual retail advisor to provide massive outperformance, you get very little return, but you'll suffer massively if you're out of line with the benchmarks by too much of a degree. Because you can at least defend how, well, we're in line with everything's down, yeah, your portfolio's down, but look, look at what the S&P 500 is doing, and you can see that we're actually doing only a little bit worse or only a little bit better. And then, as you say, at the mutual fund, you have the mutual fund managers, the portfolio managers, basically every single um, level. So about the only people who have enough incentive seem to be guys like you, hedge fund managers, where there's enough upside that you have the, oppor- the, the, the the incentive to swing for the fences for returns to invest the money. But the press is so bad and I don't know how to find you. So how do I find you is the point. And how do I find a good you, not, uh, a, not a loser?
0: So you would be substantially better off, anyone would be substantially better off, I think, investing in the average ETF or investing in the average mutual fund than the average investing in the average hedge fund. And the reason for this is very simple. Um, if you are a mutual fund, you're just not gonna veer that far from the market. You're gonna, you know, they charge 1%, you know, they're not gonna swing for the fences, or it's also not gonna destroy you. Um, Hedge funds have a terrible reputation. There are lots of types of hedge funds. Uh, there are lots of hedge funds. I have no idea what they do or how they make money. There are lots of hedge funds that are terrible. There are lots of hedge funds run by miserable people. There are lots of hedge funds run by actually, I think, quite good people. Um, a hedge fund is just a fee structure uh, and a legal structure. So hedge fund is different, but the, the axiom used to be you charge a 2% management fee and then 20% of profits. Uh, that numbers come down some. There are lots of flavors of that when you have an incentive structure like that you can imagine the amount of resources and incentive someone has to try and perform at the same time you wake up january 1st every year and you know you have to outperform whatever your benchmark is by 2% until until you even start to compare to them and so it's logical to think you know again it's just a fee structure People often choose hedge fund managers like they choose any investor. They choose on the big names that they don't think they'll get fired for. And lo and behold, you know, the investor at the average hedge fund is probably better than the average investor at a mutual fund, but I'm not sure it justifies the fee differential. And so if you look at hedge fund indices, the hedge fund indices are even worse than mutual funds in aggregate. But what that masks is a smaller subset of funds that happen to be very good. Uh, Now, how do you find that? Look, I, I, it's hard. I, I mean, I, I don't know. You're looking for any life stack, So there, the, the reality is almost definitionally, I would argue, it has to be a smaller fund. I would say it has to be a fund of somewhere between kind of 50 million and a billion dollars. Ideally, it would be one where most of the capital is capital partners uh, that has been in business for a few years um, that seems to care more about compounding their own money than growing their business well, the most common things that happens in hedge funds hopefully this won't happen to us but it's happened with most of them out there uh if you don't close to your investors and you keep getting bigger it becomes harder and harder to generate good returns right, right. Um, but there's a massive incentive to do that because every dollar you take in generally just falls to the bottom line and so what tends to happen is the folks that are good grow and they pretty much keep growing until they're no longer any good, or they're just trying to not get fired because now their incentives are to swing for the fences and generate good returns to hold on to their money empire that they built. Um, so it's exceptionally difficult. Uh, in, in my case, uh, I mean, I, it, it's like anything, right? I imagine if you're doing real estate investing, you run to people in your neighborhood, and you know that this person is really talented. I, I don't know a way to do that other than being expert in what you do. So. If you're not an expert in stocks, you probably shouldn't try and find me or anyone that's good because you're not gonna know what to look for. Whereas if you're looking in something you know a lot about, real estate or whatever it happens to be, you're probably gonna be a better judge of that. And I'd say given how expensive hedge funds are, I would dissuade anyone from thinking that the average hedge fund is gonna be good. The average hedge fund is terrible. Um, It just comes down to if you find people that are good, in a niche, have a good track record of doing that, are trustworthy, are, uh, are honest, seem to you know make sense. What they do make sense. You can understand. They can explain to you how they make money. Um, that's a good starting point. But I just think it's very hard to do that unless you have the knowledge.
1: Well, at the very least, you are basically affirming the way that I've affected it or addressed it in the sense that I can't deny the academic data on the whole, but I also can't deny the individual examples that are there, but I can't tell you how to get them. So you basically said what I say, which is, you know, things are largely efficient. The safe solution is buy a, a you know, ATF Eat index fund. And yet that doesn't mean that outperformance is not possible. I just don't know necessarily how to tell you. Uh, to get there is that a? I mean that you repeated what i have repeated right we we pretty much agree
0: look if if you wanted to talk for two hours about you know everything that we do that's different i can start to give a a clearer sense of that but i mean i assume that'd be true of anyone that that does anything well i i mean the, the conclusion that i have from from this is less you know anything related to stocks i think the thing that gets me excited is exactly what you said you know you chose an example in your life where you feel like you can get an advantage because you live in the area you know the neighborhood you know that and if you dedicate time to it you can probably do substantially better than that than the average person who probably is trying to find a new place to live has time pressure has work, isn't just focused on it the way you are and so for me the conclusion isn't I, frankly, the conclusion is more, you should find something where you feel like you have an advantage and put your money there. And I don't think that stocks unless you devote yourself to it. Now, obviously, stocks are easy. And realistically, for a lot of people, it's one of the easiest ways to spend money. But if you want to have great returns, probably not going to be an ETF. It's probably going to be doing something that you become expert in where you look at the other people doing it and you understand why you're you have an advantage.
1: I've been disconnected from the professional world of money, anything, no licenses, no anything for I think almost five years now. And over those years, I have really tried to ask myself, what do I believe now that I still believe that I believed then? And what what now that enough of my loyalties and allegiances and and conflicts of interest and whatnot have dissipated, What what did I fool myself? What did I think I believed then, but I only believed in it because it was buttering my bread? And one of the things that I believed then, but I didn't know necessarily how to articulate Uh, was basically that you shouldn't look to investing if we think of investing as buying something like just Buying a Roth IRA and putting stocks in there, you shouldn't look at that as the path to wealth because you don't have a competitive advantage. You're not knowledgeable about the market and you don't have enough money to make a difference. So, if you're only making a $5,000 investment, that $5,000 you can probably find something in your personal life. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's solar panels on your roof. Maybe it's cash for your next car. Maybe it's discounts on bulk buying of your groceries maybe it's a discount on new equipment for your business or something, you could probably find a better way close to you to put $5,000 than in the stock market. Same thing when we go up at $50,000 or $100,000 or a few hundred thousand dollars. If you've got $100,000, you can start to get, you can swing your weight around very effectively in your local community. You you can find enough opportunities where you can really get out performance. But then you face a problem where it's hard to invest your capital more and more. You get to million and millions of dollars. Unless you're an established entrepreneur or a very experienced investor who's willing to buy a 20-unit a apartment building or something like that, it gets hard to invest significant amounts of money. And I think that's where, just speaking generally, the stock market can easily absorb a million dollars. The stock market can easily absorb 5 million dollars without becoming a problem. Now, a billion dollars is very hard to invest, but a million dollars can make a big difference. And so, somebody who has a million, somebody who has a couple million, can easily come to a modestly sized firm or, you know, something like yours where you're not managing a 100 billion dollar portfolio, you can come in and there are then those opportunities for outperforming. It's and it's almost like the next logical step. You're you you keep outgrowing one market and you gotta figure out how to get into another market. And to me, that seems like the best value that the best argument in favor of um of working with somebody like you. Now, that's not to deny go, go ahead and respond to that. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting because the I would hate for people to take away from this, it's actually possible to beat the market if you can only find the right person. Look, you shouldn't trust anything I'm saying. I'm an anonymous person, and there's no reason to, to trust this. You have to use your own judgment whether I'm making sense. But you don't want to. There are so many people that have such strong incentives to convince you that they do something special that's going to get you more money than putting an in index fund. <laughs> I I go back to it, unless you are expert in stocks or in choosing managers or have really strong personal recommendations from people who actually work in the industry that you think are competent, I would generally just put money in ETFs, especially if you have a lot of money. Look, if you have a lot of money, if you have two, three, four, five million dollars, your expenses are modest, you don't need to return 10%. If you want to maximize your wealth, maybe you do, but you'd be perfectly fine it was something that's boring, you put it in an ETF, you know no one's gonna steal it from you, you know that no one is going to have sold you a pipe dream um, that they won't be able to deliver. It is really hard to outperform the market. And most people that do it, you've never heard of. uh, And if they claim they do, and you have heard of them, in many cases, they're lying. um, Because the people that are slick as salesmen, Tend to be, you know, it tends to be an inverse correlation. Most of the people I know that outperform the market have modest forms of uh, Asperger's syndrome and autism. Right. Um, but they they are people that can function very well in the world, which is why they spend all their days, you know, reading 10K's
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, the person I, I for years I read Joshua Kennan's website, uh, and he writes a lot less now that he's in, and and uh, his partner have launched a fund. But I used to read his his website, and he's such a good he was such a good writer that. I came to, I thought this is an insight into somebody who I don't I don't think he's autistic but into somebody who's just a freak like he he, he likes this stuff and it convinced me to entirely walk away from any interest in Market investing, because the kind of person you know—I would imagine you, John—the kind of person that enjoys this stuff is is weird. You know, you're you're weird, and you enjoy things that most people don't enjoy. Now, I'm my interests are are totally weird, uh, but they're weird in my direction. And so, I think the key is to 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 recognize what your interest is in. I don't want to read ten ks, but I love reading tax law, uh, like. It's weird, but that's my thing. So I want to pivot here. I didn't tell you I was going to do this, but I want to ask you about your personal financial advancement. Um, not asking you for all the details, just simply pointing out the path that you have taken towards wealth. Did you come from a wealthy family? Yes. Okay. And how did your parents invest in you? What worked and what didn't? Um. What worked
0: and what didn't? Uh, I, they sent me, they paid for my education, which I'm eternally grateful for. Um,
1: what did that education look uh, like?
0: Uh, four year university. I have no graduate degree at all. I don't think it's useful.
1: Was it elite Ivy league? Was it general, you know, mass market?
0: It was slightly below Ivy league. It was a very good school, but not actually much of a brand name.
1: And how did that benefit you?
0: Uh, I met really interesting people and found things I'm passionate about, and I had the space to do that. Um, you know, I didn't take a class that changed my life or allowed me to. I, I think it was just the social environment I met. You know, fascinating people. I had room to explore what I wanted to do. The other thing, my parents did, <laughs> so they had set aside money for college. Um, I had expressed an interest in stock investing. I've generally been prudent and conservative over time. They, when I turned 21, there was still money left in that account. They turned it over to me, and they told me, this is it. You can invest it, but if you mess it up, there's not more. And that started, and I put a lot of time and effort. I think my junior or senior year of college, I just consumed everything I could related to stocks. Um, Got lucky, frankly. I don't think I was particularly good. Got lucky, I think it was 2003, uh, which happened to be the bottom of the stock market cycle. And lo and behold, 2005, I have the same amount of money in uh in the account that i had when it was in when i was a junior uh i also decided to go part time my senior year which saved me 20 grand uh and it came out of college with you know called a couple hundred thousand dollars in an account and that started to compound my whole life and then i was exceptionally frugal um for a very long period of time
1: why were well, you frugal how, how did you learn that who taught you that
0: um, so this is interesting, actually. My uh, my my father was a very successful entrepreneur. He um, built a business that at one point was worth I don't know fifty or a hundred million dollars, and he owned maybe twenty percent of that. Um, and we had a very nice lifestyle. We had big house, and I never understood why we had a big house because there was like half the house we didn't use, and it just made no sense to me. I don't know why that appealed to me, but it was. And then something happened such that that business imploded and he went from having lots of paper wealth to not very much, or not, sorry, lots of paper wealth to still lots of paper wealth, but not as much as he was used to having. And then that paper wealth was invested very poorly and he was left with half of that. And he was still in a good place, but nowhere near what he was. And it, for lack of a better word, just got him depressed for about 15 years until things kind of finally got better. And so I just, up assuming bad things would happen. <laughs> so, so I just, you know, I didn't have a pretty simplistic person. I had things I like I need. I'm not particularly social-seeking, status seeking, seeking. I, I just, you know, I like the food I like. I don't, I wear clothes until they have big holes in them that are unsightly. It's just the way I am. And as times went on, I've had to learn to spend money. I mean, I married a, a wife who is very frugal herself, um, and, and that's just kind of the way I did it, but it wasn't really a choice. It was just the natural consequence of, of probably seeing what happened to my parents who weren't, by the way, very, very frugal at all. Um, yeah, but I don't know how that happened. I'm not sure it was them that instilled in me as much as it was just me watching what happened, um, to my family uh, as they, uh, rode up and down, um, with wealth.
1: Well, to me, that's, it's obvious. Sometimes we learn from somebody training us and us believing the person, That the person who's training us knows what they're talking about and choosing to obey them. Sometimes we learn just by simply watching an unfortunate example, an example of disaster or catastrophe or or just malaise and saying, hey, I see the problem. I don't want to repeat that. And it sounds like your personal example was a negative example, not of that you're not a, not a bad but just simply oh that didn't that wasn't a good thing if that if my parents had been more frugal then they wouldn't have experienced such severe depression when their wealth was severely diminished then when you got into the investment marketplace so you graduated from college you were managing in essence a couple hundred thousand dollars of your own money addicted to it when did you decide to go into that field professionally and what was your path into it
0: <laughs> um it's unusual decided It wasn't the right thing for me. Uh, and lo and behold, I uh, went back to, uh, you know, I'd interviewed at hedge funds at that time. Uh, there weren't any that were hiring uh, when I then came back into the market, which was not in a good economic environment. And uh, then I just kind of was scrappy and I started writing on a blog um, some of my investing ideas and the work I was doing. And Someone read it who managed money, and he gave me a job. He first offered me my salary, which I believe was $32,000 a year. Uh, I got him up a little bit, but not much, and I just kind of grinded it out. I was really scrappy, moved on from there to another firm that I met by working there, um, did a lot of in-depth stock research, loved talking to people. I just networked a bunch. Not I don't call it networking. I just love investing and it's very fun for me to talk to people and I like talking to people that are good at it. And so over time I would talk to people that were good at it and some of them would think I was good and some of them would think I wasn't. And the ones that thought I was good and I thought they were good and I thought they were reasonable people, we would connect and chat and we'd then occasionally make money together. And lo and behold, what happened with my career, it's not worth going too much detail on and I don't want to reveal myself, but um, I ended up meeting someone uh, through that process that uh, I then um, joined. Uh, in uh, in his business, uh, and I happen to think he was very good. Um, I walked away from a more lucrative job to take a chance uh, on a startup, I bet on you know the team that we had at the time, uh, of which I was a big part and he was a big part. Uh, and things went well. And they continue to go well. at some point they won't go well. Um, but uh, but basically I was at more established firms and found an entrepreneurial opportunity. Where I wanted to make a bat and take a swing. That's what I
1: did. Right, right. And so, people who are in similar um, jobs like yours with similar responsibilities like you have would earn, on average, about how much per year at this point in time?
0: It varies dramatically depending on the fund size. I mean, I can give some
1: just a range illustrative. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So. Look, so if you're if you're a partner, if you're the founder of call it a billion dollar hedge fund, in an average year you probably make ten to twenty million dollars. That's if you're the founder. If you are a partner um, that has been with the firm for a while, um, depends at the place, but call it anywhere between one to five million dollars, depending on fund individual performance. Um, uh, that's kind of at partner level and then uh, investment analyst level uh can be very good as well depending on how your ideas go and how generous the person in
1: charge is. So my point is not to probe too deeply on your personal experience but to point out as a financial planner how incredibly valuable your path is because at this point and about about how many years out of college are you uh are you?
0: Uh between uh, 10 to
1: 15. Okay. So 10 to 15 years out of college, you have come from a place where, let's just say you're making dollars, the number you said, $32,000, right? So you started with varying experiences, but $32,000 to earning in excess of 10 times that um, today in 10 to 15 years. But yet you're in a business where it aligns with your personal interests, gives you enough ownership, enough autonomy to be connected with so that you can live your life. But this is what you did when it was just your own interest. But yet you found a way to make a lot of money that way. And this is the perfect example of for somebody like you, it's a win-win-win because you are investing your own money in your own firm. Thus, you have the opportunity to earn the... The you know basically the net the 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 gross number of of eighteen percent basically instead of twelve and a half percent but you're also generating enormous fees for yourself on your management of other people's money so your income from here can basically increase assuming that you don't mess it all up it can basically increase almost exponentially over the coming decades and yet it's well aligned with something that you are interested in so I point that out because what I have observed is the most important examples for us generally to look at in personal finance are people's career paths and how their money and their career are interrelated. Not just on how do I find the best hedge fund manager or how do I find somebody to get me a lot of money in my portfolio, but who are the people who are doing it most effectively. And so you're in a business where you risked relatively little in terms of capital, but you exerted yourself in interest and in study and for years built up and accumulated the benefit of that and then parlayed that into a place where you have exponential returns because the returns that you can get from managing other people's money where you can generate as you say an act from 1 to 15 million dollars of of annual fees based upon whether you're a partner or founder of a hedge fund but when you can generate a million dollars per year reliably and consistently and be doing that while you're simultaneously investing your money then you're in the stratospheric opportunities for wealth now Many of us have opportunities similar to that, but it's important to understand what's happening. It was the same thing I tried to show people when I was a financial advisor. The financial advisor doesn't get the retail financial advisor doesn't become wealthy because they give uh, excellent financial give great investment advice. That's the biggest misconception that the financial advice industry has successfully sold to people. The financial advisor gets wealthy because they accumulate a a, a set of knowledge, and then they build. They use the as they borrow the assets of other people to generate um, to generate profit. So, as a, a financial advisor, borrows money money from other people, says I'll manage this money for you, generates fees, and those fees then go to the financial advisor's bottom line, and then um, they generate income. They pay for some expenses out of it, and then they invest the money, hopefully themselves. Hedge fund managers do the same thing, but on a much bigger scale. But then you can do the same thing at a smaller at a smaller scale. I used to have, you know, Curtis Stone was on the show a couple years you know years ago, and he borrows people's backyards and uses them to generate lots of money. So the key thing is, if you really want to grow wealthy, you've got to find ways to leverage equity, including the equities that most people don't see. And how do you use other people's money, other people's skills, other people's talents in a way that enriches you but provides a useful and important service to them? So. Uh, Does that make t- anything to add, John, from your inside experience to that?
0: Uh, I can only speak to to what I do. I feel incredibly fortunate to live in a society that massively overvalues what I do economically uh, and to enjoy doing it, to have a life that that is good from that. Right. Um, I have a lot of concerns and things I'm not good at. Thankfully, this is near my life. I don't have to worry about it as much. But uh, you know, I, I I hope that people can find things, uh, you know, at the very least that are fulfilling. Yeah. I mean, I'd probably do this even if I made quite a bit. Well, you would money just because I like it. Um, right. But you know, that I can have the other benefits is right. certainly attractive and unusual.
1: Yeah, and I I appreciate your humility. I'm I, I'm not trying to push you too far out, but just trying to show that to my audience because here's where, what I see. We're in 2019. the The niche that I'm doing right now is something that could hardly have ha- happened 20 years ago but yet the the number of specialized areas of knowledge and skill 20 years from now is going to be incredibly exponentially higher than today exponentially higher and we're in a world of increasing increasing specialization and so if somebody understands the blueprint of basically how these things work how does somebody go the path that you have 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 gone then they can see the clues and yet apply it in a totally different scenario. So that's all I'm trying to point out is this is the personal finance lesson. We're in a, we're in a world of increasing specialization. All of our careers will become increasingly specialized. So we need to understand the patterns so we can recognize them. You, you apply pattern recognition in stock investing. We all need to do that in, in, in our own careers. And I was just trying to use the example to show you. Um, John, that's all the questions I have. Is there anything that I've missed that I should have asked you about that you really wish I had touched on?
0: Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, maybe a couple random things I I would say. One is, uh, things are much more complicated than they seem in the high level. I would argue the, um, there are lots of not very good people that run hedge funds in the same way. There are lots of many not good people do all different kinds of things. I I happen to think there's a part of the community uh, of hedge fund investors that are curious passionate people that like finding the truth and enjoy being in a profession where they can get rewarded for being right and taking chances. Is it saving the planet? Is it, you know, the most, you know, meaningful thing one could do for society? No, I I would argue it's not actively bad. Um, I can make, make an argument it's modestly beneficial, but I think the reputation that the whole industry has gotten as a whole is, you know, is, is inflated. Um, and I think the only other thing I'd just say too, just to, to make sure and no in certain terms, it's really hard to outperform the stock market in general. I don't know in good conscience how to advise someone to do that themselves or to find someone that could do it without doing it as a profession and becoming an expert at it. And so ETFs are probably the best thing to do. If you Probably the best thing to do, but frankly probably the best thing if you want to do stocks, but probably the best thing to do is to find whatever example is in your life something you're passionate about that you feel like you are particularly good at and that aligns your skill sets that you find you do even if you didn't get paid for it and throw all your energy into becoming as good as that you could possibly be. And you'll probably, you know, have a reasonably happy work life, which is more than the vast majority of people can say. And you may also happen to be in a place where you can get, you know, financially free quicker than you, you might think.
1: John, thank you for coming on the show. I always close with this question. Give us your best hot stock pick that we can go right out and invest in today. What's your best hot stock pick,
0: John? Lay it on us. Uh, <laughs> as you know, I, I will not be sharing that.
1: Thanks for coming on, John. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah.